0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good to see all the smiling faces. I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, I'll just go ahead and tell you to brace yourself. I'm going to preach against gluttony this morning. (laughs) I want to see how many toes I can get. Actually, I, I try my very best. Now, I'm not a perfect person, and you all know that. I admit that. But I do try my very best not to be a hypocrite, try to live by what I preach, therefore, I will not be preaching against gluttony this morning <laughs> because i don't want to be i don't want to be a hypocrite uh i I overloaded and then loaded up some more so trust you had a good thanksgiving and and good time with your families and most of all, I hope that you uh kept Jesus at the center of that holiday thank you sir all right, so we're going to do something uh a little different today, but I think you're really going to like it um It doesn't matter if you like it or not. I'm going to do it anyway. So I talked to the pastor about it, and he was okay with it. Um, So let me just kind of set the stage for just a little bit. And uh, Matt and I are actually going to tag team a little bit. So, Matt, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and come on up and join me on stage if you don't mind. Um, So this past year, myself, David Lovin, who pastors Westside, Scott Williamson, who pastors First General Baptist, and Joel Hines. You can just have a seat there if you want to. There's one over there, or whichever seat you want. Uh, uh, Joel Hines from First Baptist Church and Doc Hamby down from uh, Dora Assembly of God. We, we get together at least once a month and just uh, pray with one another and encourage one another and and eat food and all that kind of stuff. That's, you know, preachers do best. And uh, so throughout this past year, we have been really trying to build unity uh, among our churches because how many of you know Crossway Fellowship Church is not the only church going to heaven. Amen. This, church, this town has got a lot of good churches in it and good pastors in it. And, you know, those particular churches can reach people that I won't be able to reach. And we'll be able to reach people that they won't be able to reach. And so we want to make sure that we as pastors uh, don't view ourselves as competition. And we want our churches to understand that we're not all in competition. That literally we're all on the same team. Uh, and so... Uh, as we begin to think and pray together, to what, how can we really build unity, not only among the churches in, in Willow Springs, but among the body of Christ as a whole. And so, here's the thing. We, can, we get different churches together. We can sit and argue about little points right? Secondary points. Well, our church baptizes this way, or our church does communion this way, our church, and all these little different ways that that churches get all hung up and divided that really don't matter in the big scheme of things, doesn't matter. Um, But there there are solid doctrinal truths, teachings that every Christian just has to believe. Would anybody say amen to that? And so we come together, it's like, well, people, for so many generations, the church is focused on what they disagree about. What if God's people focused on what they agreed on, amen? Amen. And so we just, one thing, you know, one, it it was really, uh, we feel like it was led by the Holy Spirit, one thought, one comment led to another, uh, and we finally come to to, uh, an agreement where we were going to, as we look into 2020, okay, this next coming year, of course, when we think of 2020, we think of our vision, right? Clear vision. If you have perfectly clear vision, you have 2020 vision. What would be the vision looking into the next year, into 2020, that God would have his church to look, to, to look on? What would God's vision be? And we know based on John chapter 17, one of, the, one of the greatest prayers, one of the final prayers that Jesus prayed on this earth. Was he prayed, he looked to the Father and he said, Father, he's praying about us. He's talking about the church not just Crossway, but all of the believers, Jesus looked to the Father and he said, Father, I pray that they will be one as we are one. I pray that all of my believers will think together as one person. They will be together in agreement. What was, the, what was the main factor on the day of Pentecost? They were all in one mind and one accord. And that's when God began to do great things through his church. And so we begin to think, okay, let's all be in one mind and one accord. And as we get prepared for 2020, starting here in December, as we kind of are closing in on the Christmas season, what are these foundations? I mean, these, the doctrinal teachings that we all agree on that you just have to believe as a Christian. And we begin to build a sermon series to a certain degree in which we're all going to preach the same thing. So you've heard me say this a lot. Uh, I I believe that Easter and Christmas uh, are probably the, the Sundays that we celebrate. Easter and the Sunday closest to Christmas are most likely God's favorite Sundays because all of the churches are preaching the same thing. You know that's got to be refreshing to the heart of God. Where week after week after week, he he sees all of these people taking points that God didn't even make. And everybody's divided and running everybody. But on Easter, on Christmas, everybody's preaching the same thing. And so we thought, what if we really come together with these main doctrinal points that we have to to believe and we all preach the same thing among our congregations. When you see your friends that go to Westside at a ball game or at a supermarket, you'll be able to say... Hey, what about this sermon? What about these, this sermon series? You'll be able to talk. There'll be cohesion and, and, and unity among the body of Christ, at least within Willow Springs. It's going to be a cool thing. It's really going to be exciting. I feel like God is, is ordaining this. So we kind of dubbed it, we dubbed it a, a, you might call it a truth inoculation. Okay, how many of you know what an inoculation is? How many of you have ever been inoculated? Yes. Okay, most of us have, not everybody. Most, you, most of the time, you're going into school, you have, to be, you have to be inoculated, right? They, they inject you with a vaccine, and that vaccine is designed to fight certain diseases. Brandon, you're the pharmacist. Is that a true statement? So, if, let's say, there was a major uh, pandemic in Willow Springs, a deadly disease had, had broke out in Willow Springs, we would do all we could to... Make sure that we inoculated everybody that we could. If we were burying people in mass graves and all of our neighbors and our community and our friends were dropping dead left and right, we would do whatever we could to get everybody inoculated to make sure that we could stop this pandemic, this spread of disease. And so, in a sense, we're fighting a different type of disease. You look at our community and we got a good church here. And all the churches that I named are good. And there's more. Not just those four. It's just... Were the four that seem to work the best together. But um, there's, if you take all of the people that go to church within this town, and that's a pretty good number of people, but it's a very small number of people compared to how many people live in Willow Springs. So what we're finding is that more and more and more uh, sin and unbelief and doubt is taking over. We're seeing people, their faith, literally becoming sick and dying on every aspect. Why? Because in a lot of ways, the churches have gotten too concerned on stuff that doesn't matter oh, you have, you, have, you have cancer, I'm sorry, let's put a band-aid on your little cut, right? That's not the problem. The problem is the cancer. So the problem is sin, and so we're thinking, okay, let's, let's take truth and inoculate our people. Let's vaccinate ourselves with truth so that we are defensed against all of the untruth that we see around us in the world. Okay, now I could preach on that for an hour, and I'm not going to do that. I'm setting the stage. Because what I want you to understand this morning, what we have to understand is that what we believe matters. Amen? Everybody say that with me. What we believe matters. Make it personal. Say it like this. What I believe matters. What I believe matters. Jesus said this, and you know this verse well. God loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes believes in him, not Allah, not good works, right, not Buddha, whoever believes in me, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What I believe matters. My entire eternity hinges on what I believe. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you believe, also, you believe in God, believe also in me. And he goes on to say this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. What we believe matters. We're living in a very inclusive world where people, our society says, well, there's many ways to heaven. And if we're not careful as God's church in, in the name of getting along, we, we can let that creep in. I'm here to tell you this morning, not based on some religious uh, notion, Jesus is the only way to heaven. Every other road leads to hell. Okay? What we believe matters. And so if what we believe matters, then knowing why we believe what we believe matters. In fact, the matter, if we don't know why we believe what we believe, then what we believe isn't worth believing. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. If we don't know why we believe what we believe, then what we believe isn't worth believing. Anybody can believe anything about anything that doesn't make it the truth. You have to have a reason why you believe what you believe, right? That's what this truth inoculation is all about. So, as this first leg of this thing this morning what we're going to be talking about is the authority of god's word specifically the bible there's a has to be a source of authority what is authority it's what has rule over us right and you, in order for you to submit to the rule over you, you have to believe that it has authority over you. Okay, so look at it like this. When you get in your car and you drive down the highway, you don't just start going 100 miles an hour because there's an authority that tells you you're only supposed to go 65. Okay? In a 65 zone, I might add. Uh, there, there's an authority. And you, you would recognize that and you adhere to it. You know you can't go break into Snappy Mart after hours and steal stuff because there's an authority, a law above you you know you're going to answer to. But now, so, so why do people break the law? Because they don't feel like the law is an authority over them. So we have an authority, the entire human race has an authority. The Word of God, the Bible, is our authority by which we are to live our life. But unless you understand why that's an authority, and if you, don't, if you don't think the Bible is an authority over your life, then you're going to completely ignore it. Isn't that true? The reason why we look to the pages of God's Word and we allow it to change us and we allow it to, to get into our life is because we believe it to be the authority. We believe it to be God's Word. Okay? Okay? So what's what we're going to talk about today? The Bible. How do and this would be the title, I guess if I was going to put it on there is how do I know that the Bible is true? How can I trust my Bible? How can I know I can trust my Bible? Now, <clears throat> this is a uh, a deep topic and I could spend 8 weeks on this one topic. And me and me and Matt are going to shotgun this thing, okay? There's there are different proofs, different things that we can look at that makes us know that we can have confidence in our Bible, that the Bible is true. Because we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. But folks, if you don't believe the Bible's true, then Christmas doesn't mean anything. Is that true? Amen. I don't understand all of these unbelievers and atheists celebrating Christmas. I don't get it. Why do they why do they celebrate it? Well they, they twist it and turn it, it's a celebration. No, no, no. We celebrate Christmas because it celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ, right? How do we know that Jesus Christ was born? How do we know he's the son of God? Because the word of God tells us to, I have to have confidence in this Bible in order for Christmas to really mean anything to me, right? And so I hope through this, we'll do just that, that this Christmas won't just be another common Christmas for you, but you'll understand the truth that is in this season that we're getting ready to celebrate, okay? So again, each one of these proofs, each one of these things that we are looking at, we could spend an enormous amount of time on each one of them. So we're not gonna... Be exhaustive and, and explain everyone to the hilt. What we're going to do, this is a shotgun approach. We're just going to sh- buckshot you with all kinds of different thoughts and ideas. So you're going to have to hang on, right? You're going to have to listen and pay attention. Uh, this is going to be a laundry list of things. So, I didn't have you turn there, but in Acts, chapter number 1, verses 1 through 3, I want to read this to you before we really jump into this. this. The Acts was written by a man by the name of Luke, you might, not, you might not realize this, but Luke also wrote Luke. Okay? Shocking. You would have never guessed that. But, but Luke wrote the book of Luke, and the book of Acts is like the sequel. Okay, Luke is the main story, and then the book of Acts is the sequel. It's it's the same writer he continues on. Luke, he's talking about Jesus, his his birth, his, uh, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then Acts picks up where that leaves off, and the starting of the church era, okay? So Luke is a historian, and even secular. That's, that's meaning uh, historians that aren't godly, that aren't looking from a biblical world, but just secular, worldly scholars will even acknowledge that Luke was a great historian. And so Luke, as a historian, recording everything that he sees and hears, with that in mind, this is what he says. The former treaties, verse 1, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, and meaning after his crucifixion, after his death, after his suffering. He showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. The word, in this is King James, the word infallible basically means unmistakable. Unmistakable proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Luke, a historian that any historian will acknowledge was a good historian, is writing this to talk about the death and the barrel and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, there are many infallible, unmistakable proofs that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Amen. The definition of faith in Hebrews says that faith is the, ev- the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. Not just a blind faith. God did not just require us to have some blind faith that, that a, a Bible was lowered out of the heaven and we just have to believe it. It's, a, it's not a blind faith. It's a faith thing, and we'll talk about that in the end. But but there are some proofs. There are some, some tangible things you can, you can put your hand on, some resources you can look at that validate. And that's what, that's what Luke here, the historian, is saying. By many infallible, unmistakable proofs, Jesus is who he declared himself to be, and so here's some of the proofs we're going to go over. Matt's going to, we're going to tag team this a little bit. There are historical proofs. There are scientific proofs. There are archeological proofs. There are biblical proofs and there are prophetic proofs. Okay. And we're going to talk about real quickly, shotgun, each one of these proofs. Now, as I was studying this and preparing for this particular message, and I'm looking over the historical and his scientific and archaeological aspect of all of this. And if those of you, how many of you were here through uh, Matt's apologetics series? How many of you got in on any? A lot of you out there. And he did a phenomenal, phenomenal job. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I was a, if I was a surgeon um, and I could take somebody's tonsils out maybe, but I probably wouldn't start taking a, uh, someone's heart out. Do an open-heart surgery. I would get somebody that could do a better job at it than I could do. And so I'm, I'm studying this, and I'm looking at this, and so I get out Matt's book from the apologetics, and I'm going through this and I'm, I'm going to use Matt's uh, material from that. I'm looking at him thinking, well, that's dumb. Just use Matt, right? So, uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand off the, the uh, mic to Matt to take care of the historical, the scientific, and some of the archaeological proofs that we look at that help us to know why I can trust my Bible. Give Matt a hand.
1: I'd be offended if you didn't literally tag me. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, it's a tag team. We got a tag team. I mean, come on, man. Praise God. I'm excited. I love doing this stuff. Uh, I hope it doesn't. I hope you love it too. <laughs> You're here anyway. I guess that's your captive audience. Um, so, w- before getting into absolutely anything else, as I'm sitting here kind of listening to him talk, uh, I think about yeah, the the best thing, historic, scientific, archaeological, whatever you want to classify. The absolute most ironclad thing that we can have, and it's all we really need to know that this thing is real, is related to what he put up on the screen just a minute ago out of the book of Acts. Luke is a is a great historian. Uh, Luke was not one of the one of the disciples that followed Jesus around. He came to the faith later. He saw what had happened. He he did the math. He figured out what was going on and he wrote a history right at the time of after Jesus was ascended back into heaven and people who were there who saw it who were witnesses to it who had the opportunity to say something else happened if something else had indeed happened picked that book up that letter up that Luke wrote and circulated around and built churches based on it and people gave their lives in defense of it what more do you need than that I mean I would not die to preserve a lie especially if that lie is supposed to be about what comes after death. If I was just trying to get people to follow me because I like the attention, I wouldn't want to die and cut that short. Uh, somebody I listened to had pointed out the, the disciples of Jesus had nothing to gain. He said, if, if somebody commits a crime, you can always follow it back to, did it make them more powerful? Did it make them richer? Or were they able to satisfy lust through the accomplishment of it. If there's one of those three things, you can probably tie the crime back to him. The disciples had nothing to gain financially. They had nothing to gain in their power or respect uh, among people. In fact, most people hated them as a result of it and actively sought to destroy them. They didn't get any kind of, you know, the ladies weren't flocking them or anything like that. So there was nothing to gain by this, except that what they said was actually true. And that's enough, honestly, right there. Um, And and know this too, and and Dennis has kind of alluded to this, but uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Nothing we say here is going to replace your faith. You have to have that faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But you're here, you're seeking him and he wants to reward you. Uh, So what we're talking about here is the authenticity of the Bible. How do we know that the Bible is indeed the authentic word of God and not just a book that some guy wrote in his basement? right? Because some people think that's, that's what happened. If we had our choice of how the Bible would have arrived, we may have chosen that God would have a beautifully bound edition complete with all the parts in it, in every language, just descend on a golden beam and lay upon a, a table for us to go view it and make copies of it. But that's not what he chose to do. And that's how you know it's God. When God does something, he doesn't do it the way you would do it. He does it in his infinite wisdom, and in his infinite wisdom, he chose to reveal his words to people, to human beings, who then wrote the book just like any other book gets written. They sat down at a table with a pen, and they wrote the thing, and it got circulated around and it got copied. And then another group of people who didn't even know those people grabbed those letters and those histories and those poems and they put them together into the Bible that we know today. And that's the way God chose to do it. And I wouldn't do it that way. And that's pretty good proof. God did it. If, if it had been logical, if it had been something that made sense to us, anybody could have done it. This is something only God could do. What makes the Bible special? I'm glad you asked, you didn't, but you would, you would, if I asked you. So let's look at the Bible, uh, kind of strip it down uh, of its religious significance and just compare it to other books. If it's just a book, if you don't believe in God and it's just a book, okay, let's start there. How does the Bible stack up against other books? So, dear, would you bring up my first image? Okay. So, uh, when if, if somebody writes a biography on Donald Trump right now... <sighs> It's probably probably dicey territory, actually. But if you wanted to do that, how do we know that that book is accurate? Okay, well, we can go to the author. We can interview the author. We can get his notes. We can check those notes against records. Uh, We could ask Donald Trump himself because he's still alive. We could do all those things to verify that the information was accurate. But if the book is really old and it's the only source of that information, then how would you... There's no way to double verify it. But historians can't let that stop them because often that's the case with old books. There's only one. And how do you know it's accurate? So this is the, the method we would use for absolutely any text. How many copies are there that we can find today? If a book stinks... You're not going to find it. I mean, go to Walmart's book section and look for a lot of the crummy books that have been written. You're not going to find them. But you'll find the Bible. You'll find certain things that have, you know, proven to be good. If we went to everybody's libraries at home and looked for certain things, really good books, we would probably find copies of them. So how many copies are there? How similar are the copies? Is one copy from 500 years earlier different than a copy from 500 years newer, if they're all really similar, then that tells us this is something that people had trust in and they wanted to keep it authentic and they didn't want to change it. How long is the gap between the event and when the original copy was written? So if it's about a war, for example, was it written within five years of the end of the war? Was it written within 25 years of the end of the war? Was it not written for 115 years after the war? because that would be different. Honestly, the 25 would be better than the 5, because you understand it better 25 years later. How long between the first copy, so the event happened, then 25 years later somebody wrote it, that's the first edition, but we probably don't have the first edition of an ancient book, because, you know, it deteriorated. How old is our copy? Because if we have a really old copy of a book that's been well-preserved and it's stayed authentic over the years, and a lot of people have copies of this book, that tells us that what is in it is probably good and accurate. They wouldn't have had so many copies if it wasn't good and accurate. It wouldn't have been so carefully preserved. And it's handy if we have a copy that's pretty recent because then we know we're really close to the original. Okay, so next, next image, darling. Okay, so the Iliad, just it's not a random book that I'm picking here. The Iliad is the next best book on every single one of these metrics that we just talked about in comparison to the Bible if we're talking about ancient texts because the Bible was written almost 2,000 years ago in its final form. Parts of it were written you know a couple thousand years before that. Uh, so if we're talking about the, just the New Testament Bible... The Iliad, there are about 1,700, 1,800 copies of that book still around, you know, that we've managed to dig up over the years, Uh, compared to the New Testament, where there are 5,800 copies of just the Greek language version, which would mean these are the original churches that were circulating this thing around, directly around where Jesus uh, had preached. You would expect Greek copies, because that's what people were, were writing at that time. 5,700 copies. If you want to count all of the various language copies, there's over 18,000. So it's a very prolific book. The Iliad was written, and then there's about 400 years before we have a copy. We don't have Homer's original copy. We have one that's 400 years after the fact. Our New Testament Bible is less than 40 years. The oldest copy we have of the complete set, the whole book is about 40 years from the the first edition, so to speak. So that's a really short period of time uh, within a generation, so that's really good. Um, if you pick up various copies of the Iliad, you'll find they're in about 95% agreement with each other. So that means 5% of the text is different from one copy to another. The New Testament is well over 99% the same, and if that concerns you that it's not 100% the same, you gotta know this book has been translated multiple times you know into all these different languages and almost every one of those is a is a result of a spelling where for example a word in the original copy may have been spelled two different ways and then some scribe who copied it corrected that and the misspelling is not a misspelling anymore or whatever Um, and that's it there's nothing doctrinal there's nothing about jesus's divinity or anything like that, that that that's different between copies absolutely nothing you would be concerned about you can dig into that if you want to okay so hands down the bible is absolutely the best book if you just want to take the just the paper what's it worth it's worth more in terms of an authentic text than any other ancient book ever Well, that in and of itself is enough that anybody ought to pay attention to it. And then if you bother to pay attention to it and you read its contents and you understand what I was saying just a minute ago, that people died to protect the content of that book in the generation immediately in contact with Jesus. How could you draw any other conclusion but that the words in the book are true? And if the words that Jesus spoke are true... He spoke about the Old Testament. He quoted every Old Testament book. You can have faith that that's true too. And if that's true, it ought to change your life. It ought to change your life. It really should. Okay, next slide, darling. So, just summary of all of that stuff. How many copies? Four to 10,000, depending on how you want to count them. Well, more than any other ancient book. How similar? Nearly identical, which is unheard of. How long is the gap? only a generation, you know, as short as, depending on the estimates you use, 10 years, if you count, uh, you know, uh, earlier dating on some of the copies, depends on how liberal or conservative you are, up to maybe 50 years, but that's still a crazy short time. And how long between the first copy and our copy? um, Over 350 years less than any other book. That's just a book, even if you don't believe its contents, it's better than any other book out there. And then you might as well go ahead and look into its contents and see that that's good too. Um, so here's one other thing. So in terms of history, I just, a couple points. One, okay, the, the, the people were willing to die for it. That tells you something, historically. Two, historically, it's the best preserved book ever. That tells you something. Three, and finally, on this note, on, on history, uh, Another powerful thing to consider, when man invents God in any other culture, it looks kind of the same. When you think about the Greek gods, the Roman gods, the Egyptian gods, if you didn't fall asleep in world history class, the Sumerian gods and like Gilgamesh epic and stuff like that, it's always a pantheon of gods who have human frailty. Zeus gets mad and kills somebody. Zeus fools around with some gal and has kids and then has to deal with the, the repercussions of those children and what, the problems that they cause them. Every single world religion is like that. Only the Hebrew people were claiming there is but one God and he is benevolent, and he is kind, and yeah, he has a justice side, but he doesn't strike out in anger and wipe people out. He's a benevolent God. He gives us a day of rest, for goodness sake. He begs us to take a day off for our own benefit. What other God is like that? Every other world religion, Dennis brought up uh, Buddha and Allah, you know, the Hindu faith, The Buddhist faith comes from the Hindu faith, um, the Islamic faith, Mormonism. Every single other world religion has a set of tasks you must perform to earn enlightenment, salvation, whatever you want to call it. Only the Christian faith says you can't earn it. Don't even try. God gave you the salvation free Now, how are you going to act now that you have it? And you should do good deeds, but not to put coins in your karma bank. Karma, this Buddhism and Hinduism. Not so that you can secure a better world in your Mormon faith that your future universe that you will get to populate with your own uh, spirit children or whatever, you're not gaining points for that by doing good deeds. You're doing it because God did something so good for you, you can't help but do good for other people. Only Christianity works that way. Isn't that interesting? Every other God falls before ours because ours is real. Okay, so historically speaking, that's, that's all you need, I think. That's all you need. Um, let's move on to scientific proofs, and I'll make th- this really, really quick. Um, in the apologetics seminar, we went into really great detail. If you want to get that detail and you weren't here for it, it's on YouTube. Watch it. Uh, a lot of people have, and that's been great. Um, but I'm just going to cover just a few things. Um, so let's get down to the basic kind of level of, of just some, some things to look at. We bring up that next image oh, I forgot about this. This is a quote. I almost forgot my quote. Uh, Ravi Zacharias is a, is a noted Christian author and um, you know, he's done all the research too. He's a far more trustworthy guy than I am in terms of the reliability of the Bible and getting down into the scripture and all this stuff. And he says, in real terms, the New Testament is the best attested ancient writing because of the sheer number of documents, the time span, the variety of documents. There is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match this availability and integrity of a text. Okay, so you're getting it from somebody smarter than me. Okay, next slide. This is the one I was after. Okay, so um, scientific questions. If we're just, again, just kind of strip it down. Let's say you don't believe in God. Okay, cool. So basic scientific questions we have to answer because we human beings just need an answer to these questions. Where did all this stuff come from? How did life get here? How does it all work? And where is it all going? Right? I mean, that's what everybody wants to know. Where did this stuff come from? How did I get here? What is my purpose? What's this all about? So, from the scientific perspective, where did all the stuff come from? There was a bang. And all the stuff just went everywhere. Bits, whatever, the bits, subatomic particles, the bits became atoms. The atoms became hydrogen, and the hydrogen became stuff, all of the stuff, all of the stuff, chairs and chickens and ham sandwiches and all that stuff. It seems kind of crazy, because it is crazy. Uh, I had somebody tell me, I was talking to somebody about this, and they're like, oh, well, it's not that all this, because I said, doesn't it bother you that... All the stuff in the universe had to move at faster than the speed of light, and that's more like that's an infinite amount of energy. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. The stuff didn't move. The space between the stuff did. (laughs) Cool. That's a neat way of getting around that problem. I'm going to remember that the next time my wife tells me to do something and I didn't do it. I can come up with an excuse based on that. That makes no sense. Okay, so where did all the stuff come from? According to the Big Bang... Something exploded, and if you say, what was the something? Nobody knows. Okay, so the truth is, you don't know. Cool, I can live with that. You don't know, I do know, because the Bible says God just spoke it into existence. If that sounds crazy, I agree. God speaking everything to existence sounds kind of crazy. It also sounds crazy that nothing exploded and then everything happened. So, we're both good, right? How did life originate? A chemical accident. We used to think that chemical, chemical accident happened on Earth. Lightning struck a pool of juice, and then it created a single-celled organism that became a tadpole, and the tadpole became a fish, and the fish became a dinosaur, and the dinosaur crawled back into the water and became a whale, and the whale became a chicken, and the chicken flew off. I don't know. I, I, I can't say for sure. A chemical accident. Now they know from all the scientific research and testing that that chemical accident makes no sense. They can't get any kind of chemical reaction to produce the fundamental parts of life, and those things survive long enough to make any kind of sense. So now what the the going theory is, well, it happened somewhere else, and it came here on a meteor. A living thing survived the cold recesses of space in a crack of a rock, then survived into the atmosphere and crashing, and then conveniently landing on some clay or something where it could have reactions and turn into tadpoles to turn into whales and dolphins and chickens and whatever. Okay. Or similarly crazy, God said, "Let there be." and put his breath on it and man became a living soul, right? Is it any less is it any more reasonable or less reasonable to say one of those claims is true and the other one is false? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, how does it all work together? Whoever is best at not dying has babies and passes that on. That's Darwin's theory in a really nice nutshell. You got the longest claws, the sharpest teeth, the biggest muscles, you get to have the most babies. Here's the problem with that. We, we've never seen it actually happen. We've never seen a species really fundamentally alter its form based upon inheritance, And we've been looking for a couple hundred years. Still haven't seen that happen. It is true that a bird's beak might get longer over time or the coloring of a moth might change over time. But moths never become grasshoppers. Not ever. Or even have a meaningful change. And as I said during the apologetics, if we're going to believe that one creature gradually becomes another creature, explain wings to me. It stands to reason that stuff didn't fly to begin with, and they developed wings, but you don't just pop out of your mom with a wing all of a sudden. That had to be, like, a little thing that got bigger, and so for, what, a billion years, there's some weird little creature going around like this, but not able to fly, and it's like, no, I'm gonna keep that, because that's handy. I'm gonna use that one day. Not today, but someday in the future. Like, that's stupid. Okay, so... Maybe the reason why it all works together is because God ordained it to work together. You're going to need something to eat, so I'm going to make those. Stuff's going to die and have disease on it, so I'm going to make vultures to clean that up. You're going to spill oil in the ocean one of these days, so I'm going to make microbiotic critters that eat that oil That's how the BP oil spill got cleaned up, by the way. We raked that stuff off the top. We did like 5% of the work. The other 95% of the work were done by natural processes that God built because he's much better at this than we are. Where is it all going? According to science, heat death. Everything, like the universe is expanding, which means all of the stuff, all of the stuff, your stuff, this stuff, my stuff, will slowly stretch out until it breaks apart and slowly spread out across the universe. Kind of think of it like your children's bedroom. It all starts off neatly organized on shelves and then and over time you find it under the couch and out across the street, in somebody else's yard, and at somebody else's house, right? Like, that's what's going to happen. The universe is slowly going to break down and spread out and grow cold, and eventually it'll just be a vast plane of nothingness, which makes a great bedtime story for your kids. Or God created you for a purpose. He has a purpose for you and he has a limited time for you to do that because one day he's coming back, praise God, and he's gonna fix all the damage we've done and right all the wrongs and reward all the people who chose to believe on him and create a new world where all this stuff works exactly the way he intended it to because we haven't messed it up. I think that's what's gonna happen. Okay, that's enough about science. I will say this. Book of Job, chapter 12, verse 7, says this. You want to know how this all works? Ask the beasts. They will teach you. Not literally. We're not Dr. Dolittle, right? Look at them. Look at how they behave. The birds of the heavens, they will tell you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among these doesn't know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Just look around you, and it's obvious this didn't happen by accident. It was carefully thought out, planned, and designed. Okay. Make sure I didn't miss anything. I don't think so. Okay. So, uh, out of all of this science stuff that's not up there anymore, but I'm waving at it as though it were, um, there's no meaning... To any of it, it's a it's an explanation based on this belief that some people have that everything has to have a natural explanation. That's crazy. Why would you expect there to be a natural explanation for all this? I think there's a supernatural explanation, and it's God. And if you can just swallow the possibility oh, we can believe in aliens and ghosts and have 72 channels on, or 72 TV shows on TLC and travel channel about that stuff, but Jesus healing blind people? I don't know. That sounds kind of crazy. Right? Like, come on. None of that has any meaning to it. The Bible has meaning to it. And, okay, if we want to really dig in And understand all of this stuff has a purpose and has a meaning and it means something for me. Our life begins to change and we begin to reflect that image of God. And even though we don't understand it all and it doesn't all make sense to us and maybe we haven't read every single word of the Bible, that's okay. Abraham didn't read the Bible either because it didn't even exist. But he served God, right? And if we want to share with other people that the Bible is authentic and real and none of this stuff works for them. Like, well, I still don't know about that book. Well, I still don't know about that history. Well, I still don't know about that science. Okay, cool. How about this? If we're going to question a witness, and this is my last point, point, I'll turn it back over to Dennis. If we're to question a witness to a crime and they provide us with information that is different than what anybody else is saying, they're either the one person who really knows what happened or they're totally making it up, right? Because I've got all these different witnesses and they've told me stuff, but it's not helpful and we're not solving the case. And then somebody comes forward and says, I know who did it. This is what happened. And we say, "Whoa, that's different. Hmm. So God is not a pantheon. So God doesn't want you to sacrifice children to him. So God wants you to take a day off. God already did all the work and all you have to do is accept his free gift. Hmm. That stands in stark contrast to everything else I've been told. Okay. Here's what they do when they put information out on a case because they can't solve it and they're asking for help and they put the information out on the news and they put the information in the newspaper. They don't tell you everything they know because if somebody comes forward and they know something that they shouldn't know, there's no way they could know that, then even I don't know, they're telling me A, B, and C. I already know A, but they don't know that I know. I can't prove that B and C is true, but it stands to reason that it is because they knew A, and if they knew A and they shouldn't have, then whatever else they say very well may be true. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's something archaeological that the Bible has. We've known it to be true for a long time. Will you put up my last picture? This is a rock that was dug up in 1993 In Tel Dan, which is northern Israel, it is the first extra biblical, meaning not in the Bible, source that actually mentions King David. David's life sounds like a fairy tale. A little boy, a guy came and said, one of these sons will be the king. And it wasn't the big, strong, strapping one, and it wasn't the handsome one, and it wasn't the one who got a 36 on his ACT. It's the little, ruddy, runt of the litter who's out watching the sheep and he gets picked to be king. And after he gets picked to be king and he's like eight years old, he slays a giant with his own hand and cuts his head off. And they don't do that part in the little kid's story. They always talk about the sling and the stone. They never talk about him taking Goliath's sword and chopping his head off and holding it up. Uh, But he did do that. And yeah, Carter's like, what? Um, (laughs) That's what happens in big church. So. That sounds crazy. A little kid kills a giant. That's pretty wild. And then he goes on to defeat all of God's enemies and unite all the kingdom together and collect all the materials for the temple. This guy sounds too good to be true. And for most of history, everybody thought, well, that's because he's not real. Uh Uh-oh. Look at that. We just dug something up that proves the only source of information in the entire world that David ever existed. Was the Bible. Nobody else knew it. He's not written down anywhere. And so people thought he wasn't real. And then we dig this up. If A is real, it follows that B and C and XYZ and AAC and everything else that the Bible says is true. This stone says it's an Aramean king who says, I killed a king of Israel. That guy is of the house of David. Well, that's exactly what our Bible says. Go figure. And there's other archaeological things that confirm only the Bible knew until a certain point. Well, that should tell you what's in it is true. You can rest easy on this book. You go to the grave of the Buddha. There's bones in that grave. And what the Buddha said wasn't even written down for who nobody even mentioned the Buddha until he'd been dead for 200 years. Nobody wrote anything that he taught for another 200 years. And his bones are in a grave. Muhammad, the prophet, bones are in his grave. And Muhammad had a really peaceful religion until he got enough people behind him that he actually had an army and then his religion became very different. And they became militaristic. He changed his story. God never changes. And Muhammad's bones are in a grave. You won't find Jesus' bones because he didn't stay in that grave. That's what makes it special. That's what makes it different. That's what gives it authenticity. I'm going to give this back to you. I don't think I did too bad.
0: Tag. No, you did great. Take. Tag. Give him a hand. Awesome. Good job. Wasn't that good? I don't, I, I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you guys because you've said it time and time again. I could sit and listen to him for hours. Um, and I promise you I couldn't have said it any better than what he just said it. It's, uh, it's amazing when you really stop and look at the details. We get, we get in a rut and became, things just be, kind of become normal to us. But when you really stop and look at how amazing this stuff is, it does nothing but boost our faith. He was talking about, you know, as far as archaeological digs and stuff, you know, in in 1948, there were some people running around Israel over there, somewhere around the Dead Sea, and they were going. What is, what is cave is it spelunking? Spelunk. <laughs> Spunking, yeah, spelunking. 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 Anyway, they were they were exploring caves, and they come across this cave that had a whole bunch of really really old scrolls in it that they've become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, so the reason why and it was it was really exciting. Uh, discovery, one of the reasons why it was so so exciting was because it, one of the scrolls that they found uh, was an entire book of Isaiah. okay Now when you read the book of Isaiah there are all kinds of prophecies about the Christ. Isaiah prophesied that the Christ would suffer, right? He would uh, for, uh, you know, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And so Isaiah prophesied about Jesus Christ and that he would suffer. Well, what happened, a lot of people after Jesus came, he died, he suffered, he rose from the dead, uh, people would say, well, now the Christians have just tweaked Isaiah They've tweaked some of those writings to make Jesus fit the bill. And they could say, well, Isaiah prophesied like this, blah, 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 blah. And they may have had a little bit of clout to their thing. But in 1948, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, this book of Isaiah, which dated way, way back before Jesus Christ was ever born. And they compared that Isaiah with the Isaiah that's in your Bible. And they are exactly the same. Nobody tweaked the book of Isaiah to make Jesus fit it. It happened just like the Bible says that it happened. Isaiah prophesied 800 years before Jesus was ever born that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer and die. Jesus was born. He fit the bill. You see, the point is that when we look at all of these archaeological proofs, these things that have been under the ground for for thousands of years or 2,000 years, and God held them for such a time as this, right? A time where we, we look around, and a lot of times people will say, well, we're, we're living in the end times. I mean, things are wrapping up. What's the chances that all that stuff, nobody knew it was there, and in, in this moment of time, they come to the surface, and we look at them, and we go, whoa, wait a minute. God is real, right? You know, it's like you, you, you see these uh, scientific studies and doctors have put out these studies and they're saying, after millions of dollars and so many hours of, of research, we have come to the conclusion that, that prayer really helps people. Okay, you didn't need to spend millions of dollars and hours on We've known that, but it's, it's just awesome to see what God has done. So, um, you know, again, we could look at, we could take each one of these things and go and go and go and go, me and Matt especially. Because we're geeks. We like this kind of stuff, right? I hope you like this kind of stuff. If you don't like it, hey, it's, it's, look at your neighbor and say, shut up and take your medicine, right? We're inoculating you. We're, we're inoculating you. It's, it's good medicine. This is good information uh, to understand. Uh, so I want to hit two points very, very quickly, and then we're, we're going to let you go. We've talked about the historical... Proofs things we can look at from a historical perspective, a scientific perspective, a, an archaeological perspective, and those types of things. let's um, look to the Bible itself, okay Scripture interprets scripture, meaning when you look at the Bible, it doesn't contradict itself, and if you look at it and there's parts that seems to contradict itself, um, it's, you're, you're, there's more to the story than what you realize. it is perfectly cohesive, the Bible itself Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. Paul refers to the writings of Moses as Scripture. And we, we look at those, those eyewitnesses. When you look at the Bible, it is, like Mike, Mike Matt said, it is a recording of eyewitnesses, people that, ap- that actually saw these things take place. Now I'm going to read this for you, and this is in Second Peter. Um, if I can find it here. There we go. Second Peter, chapter one, verse 16. This is the scripture speaking basically of itself and, and the reliability of it. For we have not followed cunning, devised fables. Now, this is Peter who's writing this. Peter who followed Jesus, who saw Jesus walk on water, who walked on water with Jesus for a little while, who saw Jesus heal the blind and all of these things. For we have not followed cunning, devised fables. We're not following just a, a story or a fairy tale here. When we made known unto you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and were eyewitnesses of his majesty... For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter said, I was there, the transfiguration, I literally heard the voice of God speak confirmation to Jesus. This voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawn and the the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter said, we saw him. We heard his voice. We watched what he did. We saw them lay him in a grave, and we saw him three days later, he ate with us. Okay, and the scripture itself, when you look through it, it, it nobody could put these, this together the way God could put it together. I know I'm not smart enough, but let's look at one more thing, and then I'm going to let you go, because this, this is cool to me. The prophecies, okay, that are in the Bible. You look at the Bible, there's a lot of history here, okay? There's a lot of prophecy you know, old, old prophecy that prophesied of things that would come, and then there's prophecy of things that will come later. But let's look at some things that were prophesied by the scripture that happened. How many of you know, if somebody predicts something and it happens, you're gonna, they, must, they must have known what was going to happen. And so, there's, there's a bunch, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but let's look at just two, okay? In 1948... There was a very, well, we talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but there was another very important world event that took place in 1948. Does anybody know what that might be? Israel, Israel became a nation. Okay? Now, I was born in 1976. So, as long as I've been alive, Israel was its own nation. Okay? That, so, to me... You know, not knowing that, okay, big deal. You watch the news, Israel is its own nation. And that may not seem like a, a big deal, but what you have to understand is that when you go back to the days of Solomon, in the days of Solomon is when the nation of Israel first it had its first split. Like it divided. Solomon went off the rails and, and it split. And from that moment, it was a downhill spiral. We find where Israel got more ungodly and they turned away from God. They rejected God. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, this great empire, the Babylonian Empire, raised up. And just started conquering the world. So the Babylonians, they come into Jerusalem, they come into Israel, they conquer Israel, and they take all of its people, and they just scatter them out all over the world. They take some Jews, and they put them over here. and They take some Jews, and they put them over there. So Israel was no longer a nation. Just the people were scattered. But when you read through the book of Ezekiel, especially, Ezekiel prophesied, God showed him, that one day, God was going to bring all of the Jews from the four corners of the world, that God was going to bring them back together again. There's, and now, remember, we're talking, what, two, thousands of years, a long period of time where the, where the Jews were not a nation. And so in 1946, I mean, we're looking at Solomon all the way up to Hitler and the Holocaust. This, this great slaughter of the Jewish people he's trying to eliminate them that that happens for that whole period of time and so in 1946 if somebody would have said to you if you were alive then you know, uh, Israel's going to be a nation here soon they would have thought you were nuts Israel's been scattered Israel's not been a nation for generations and in 1948 the Jews began to come back together again and they were recognized by the world as a nation as a state. So we think, okay, big deal. The Bible prophesied that. And again, it may not mean I make a big deal to you, but nobody would have ever dreamed it. But it happened because the, and the Bible predicted that. That gives credence to those prophecies. Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream one time. This is the other one I'm going to talk about. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had this dream. And in this dream, he sees this statue. Statue had a gold head, silver chest and silver arms, kind of a, bra, a bronze mid-area, and then his, the feet was iron, and, and the, the, or the legs were iron, and the feet were iron and clay. That's the statue that he saw. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, man, what is the deal? I don't understand what this, what this dream is all about. He brings in Daniel, who interprets the dream. And basically, Daniel says, well, well, Nebuchadnezzar, this dream is actually a prophecy. This statue with all of these different metals represents something. Okay? The head of gold represents you, Nebuchadnezzar. It, repre- it represented the Babylonian empire. that was strong. There's nothing stronger than gold. You, what we find is each one of these metals, uh, each one of these metals gets weaker as it goes down. The gold head represented the Babylonian empire, which was massive, which was strong. But the next empire that would come, which would be the, the Persian Empire, was still a strong empire, but it wasn't quite as strong as the Babylonian Empire. And then the next empire that would come would be the Grecian Empire, which would be not as strong as the ones before that. And the empire that would come after that, which would end up being the Roman Empire, which was the the weakest of them all. The point of all of that is this. This was a prophecy that took place. It was a statue. It was a dream and, and Daniel prophesied that these kingdoms would come and you don't have to have the Bible to go back and look in history. That's exactly what happened. Each one of those empires rose and fell just like the Bible predicted that it would. Here's the best part of it all. In this dream, the statue is standing up there and out of nowhere, out of the mountain comes a stone. A stone that was not made by man's hands. A stone that was hewn out of the mountain. The stone that came and it hit the statue and blew it apart. And then that stone began to grow and it became a mountain. And what that stone represented was Christ. That Christ would come. That God would send his son into the world and destroy and take down all of the kingdoms of the world. And that Jesus would be, his kingdom would be an eternal kingdom amen? amen now part of that prophecy has already come to come to pass because ain't nobody can take your salvation from you you're part of the kingdom of God and it's eternal it's forever but one day Jesus is gonna return amen if any of the words of Jesus are true then all of them are true and he's gonna return and all of the kingdoms of this world however strong they are will one day come to an end amen your Bible is is reliable the, word, the Bible, God gave us instructions. He gave us something that we, an authority that we can live by. And all of this we talked about today, like I said, it's a shotgun approach. And I know even a lot of it maybe didn't make sense. We, we did all this to just to let you show there's answers to our questions. I don't, want all, I don't want all of you living in a bubble so afraid to ask questions. I want you to understand God's bigger than that. Amen? I want you to say, God, God is bigger than that. God can take the scrutiny. God wants us to learn and he wants us to grow. He wants us to serve him. This, this, this is a faith walk. Matt quoted the verse a minute ago, without faith it's impossible to please God. But we, we also know about him intellectually. I mean, our salvation is not just determined just by what we understand, but God says, look, I want you to understand and grow in knowledge. It all boils down to whether or not We will humble ourselves to believe. Amen? Pride is something that keeps us from believing. If I don't want to answer to a God, then I can eliminate God in my thinking. That's what ultimately happens. And all of this being said, we didn't do all of this to present an argument to try to get and convince anybody to be a believer today. Because like Matt said, all of these things we talk about by themselves is not enough to make you a believer. Get you thinking maybe. Jesus told a parable about a rich man and and a beggar. Both men died. The, The beggar opened up his eyes in heaven, ultimately, in paradise. The rich man opened his eyes in hell. This is after death. And the rich man began to cry out to Abraham. He began to cry out for mercy. But there was no mercy. He was already in hell. Eternity had come for him. And so the rich man begins to say to Abraham, would you please send Lazarus, that was the beggar's name, would you please send Lazarus back to earth to talk to my brothers so that they don't have to come here? And Abraham's response was very interesting. He said, no, I'm not gonna do that. They have Moses and the prophets. Right? They've got their Bible. They've got the scriptures. And he said this, this is interesting. they don't believe them then they're not going to believe somebody though he comes back from the dead what does that mean people who are looking for hard hardcore solid proof that they can they can believe god because they're believing it with their eyes he said they're never really going to believe we believe by faith because we can look and we can see and we can sense god dealing with our heart amen we come to a place of this you know, we all have to make the decision to follow God. Whosoever believes in me, Jesus said, should not perish. We, we make that decision. God draws us. We take all of this information, you got to do something with it. Amen? I want to ask you guys, go ahead and come to the piano. You get all this information, you have to do something with it. And we either just sweep it all aside and say, nah, forget it. Or we say, God, I don't know you the way I want to know you. But I'm going to open my heart for you to reveal yourself to me. I want to know you who you really are. Because see, here's the thing that might surprise you. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you'd believe the Bible. Jesus gave you the Bible so that you would believe in him dying on the cross. That's what this is really all about. It's not just an argument over this book. We want you to understand that this is the, the word of God. believe that he, he gave it to us but he gave it to us so that you could have a relationship with him and escape the same eternity that the rich man faced.